Well, it's, uh, it's, good to, it's good to open our word together. If you're going to follow in your Bible, uh, it's going to be John chapter 5 uh, is where we will be. And if you were here last week, you may recall I got some sermoning out of order, uh, preached an extra sermon a couple of weeks ago, you know, doubled up that week. And so now, uh, as, as fate would have it, um, we are beginning or ending a, a, a piece of John and we'll go into the summer and we'll, we have some, we're going to study Joseph in a moment and some other things. And this message today was supposed to be the kickoff message in August, but you know, ADHD being what it is, uh, we are way out of order. We're going to bring this message today. And as I worked on it, I got to thinking, I think God's right. I think this is a better place to put it. It fits with where we've been. Uh, and this is also to say that if this, if someone says later, like, hey, Jesse, that message was for me, it wasn't planned that way. You were supposed to get it like in early September. And so maybe I, I'm just wondering, like, I wonder how the Lord is going to use this message today. We're, we're going through the gospel of John because we want to get a really good look at Jesus based on those people who saw Jesus face to face. John, being an eyewitness of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, was there at all the big events, had a really interesting view of who Jesus is. And he came to the conclusion after all the dust settles that to know Jesus and to get him right is the source to life. And the way that John talks about life, I, I, I don't know that I've mentioned this yet in the series, uh, the way that he talks about life, it's, it's not so much like after life. It's not like... It's heaven. Heaven is like a byproduct of what we're talking about, but it's not even the main point. John isn't so much saying, hey, accept Jesus so that one day you can go to heaven. He's saying, accept Jesus so that you can have life now. That, that, that rot in our soul, that, that death that's in our soul, it, it does not have to permeate. And to know Jesus and to get him right and to receive him is eternal life today. And, and then we read all through, you know, so far that people who went to Jesus, dealt with him honestly, asked Jesus questions, they walked away with a different view of life, a different way of hoping, a different way of living. We don't see people that walk away from Jesus with like a, yes, I'm set for heaven and then go do whatever they want. Or yes, I get to go to heaven and then they suffer pointlessly from that point forward, we see people walk away from Jesus with life today. And so I just want to invite you to consider this Jesus. Uh, are you compelled to believe that Jesus is this person, the source of life, the word made flesh? And if you are, then that is a point of worship. But if you're considering it, uh, I would just invite you to look around and just look at the evidence. The evidence of scripture is that people who took Jesus seriously walked away with life. And the evidence in my own life and talking with many of you and many other people, is that there's something weird about people who really take Jesus seriously and then they go through suffering. They face it differently. I, I don't know if you've experienced that, but people who, who take Jesus seriously, they tend to face their own struggles on a different beat than those who have no other hope outside of themselves. And so my, the evidence in my life, I, I'm just compelled to believe that Jesus is who John says that he is. And we want to look at that together. Um, we're going to meet a man here in a moment that didn't know who Jesus was, didn't care about Jesus, didn't, didn't even ask to meet Jesus, and yet he meets Jesus. Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation <clears throat> where someone walks into the room unexpectedly and it just changes the atmosphere of, of everything? Yeah? Have you, have you ever been in a situation where you're like, you and somebody else in the workroom is talking about the boss or you know, kids, you're talking about the teacher, and then someone kind of gives you that look like, and you're like, he's behind me, isn't he? And you're like, oh, well, yeah, what was I saying? And so you just sort of play it off. You, you walk it off this, this moment where the person walks in the room and just changes everything. Uh, when I was about 18 or 19 years old, I'm in Dallas. Uh, I'm at this big event. There's, there's Christian music. There's a bunch of teaching. And there's this homeless guy that walks in. I think I've shared this before. And when this guy walks into the building, it's like 4,000 people just like flock to him. This is the most famous homeless guy you've ever met coming off of the streets of downtown Dallas. And 
he just walks through the crowd. People are high-fiving him. I'm like, that guy has the best self-esteem I've ever seen. He was on top of the world. And then this guy that I've never met before that I assumed was just some homeless guy, he takes the stage and he plays some of David Crowder's first album because it was, in fact, David Crowder after his first album had gone uh, public. I just thought, man, like that changes everything. I wish I knew that. I would have gotten an autograph. He was right there. But you just don't go to random strangers and get autographs. And so I didn't. Uh, I could I could have. Uh, I've been in situations, uh, and it's less now than it used to be, but when, when someone's like, hey, you know, you're having small talk and you're getting to know me, and it's like, oh, so, so you're, oh, you're a plumber, yeah, oh, electrician, so Jesse, what do you do? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor. It's like all of a sudden the beers go flying, like, I, I wasn't drinking, I, I don't know. I, that, that cuss word I said, it was just a sample, I don't really cuss that way. People get weird when they find out they're like, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I think many of you have had experiences where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian, like, oh, I shouldn't have said that, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. Like, if you've ever felt weirded out by that, you know, it's like, ah, you don't really need my forgiveness. Like, that's, I didn't mean to make this weird. There's, there's this moment in this guy's life who has no name in John chapter 5, where it's a normal day, and he's going through his normal junk, and it's the same junk he's been going through forever, and then in walks Jesus. And nobody, nobody brought him to Jesus Nobody goes to Jesus and says, hey, I want you to meet this guy. Um, nobody lowered this man through a roof, as one, one set of friends did, to get them to Jesus. This guy had no business seeing Jesus, and Jesus didn't apparently have anything on his calendar like, go meet this man. It was just Jesus walked in and walked straight to that guy. And I just want to acknowledge this space for a second uh, before we read the story. Um, when when we talk to people who are unbelievers, or we talk to people that we're, we're really praying that the Lord would do a thing, um, there's, this, there's this pressure that I hear in people's voices. Like, it's on me. It's on me to bring the message to them. It's on me to bring the presentation to them. Listen to me. Listen to me very carefully. The Jesus that we're talking about, he's alive and well right now. Um, he doesn't need us to prove to others that he exists. And he's fully capable of meeting people where they're at without our help. We're invited to be a part of that, but it's not up to us. If Jesus chooses to just intersect someone's life, to invade their story, he can and he will. And that's what happens here with this guy at the pool of Bethesda. If you've, um, uh, we'll be at the beginning of chapter five, verse one, but if you've watched the TV show, The Chosen, um, The Chosen takes some, some fictional literary license, but it does a really good job of telling the story of Jesus and the way that they handle this man at the pool. It, it, it's something else. Um, the man at the pool in The Chosen is named Jesse. So I'm like really keyed in on that, but, uh, mostly he's just, he doesn't have a name. Uh, I would encourage you, like, if this story interests you, maybe go find it. It's on YouTube. It's for free. Just The Chosen Pool of Bethesda. Watch the one episode. It's, it's worth a watch. Uh, let's start reading in verse 1, and let's see where we, where we go. It says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So uh, if, you've, if you've been studying with uh, uh, John for uh, a while, you know that he really likes these timestamps, and he's letting us know, hey, we're moving to a different place. And so when he says after this, he assumes that you just finished reading chapter 4. And so if you were here last week, the, the way that the story would work is uh, Jesus went from Samaria, and he goes up to the north, and then you have in Cana and Capernaum, the, the guy with the, the official with the 
sick kid comes and begs Jesus, I just need you to come heal my son. I need you so bad to come heal my son. Jesus does a little teaching moment and the guy's not having it. He's like, this is an emergency. If you were here last week, you remember, it's like, I don't care. Nothing else matters. Come heal my son. And now John has kind of finished that story and he's, he's kind of bringing up another story. And I think we're meant to hold these side by side in our heads. In the one story, the guy begs Jesus to come. In this story, this guy doesn't even know the name Jesus. And nobody is on his behalf asking Jesus to come. And Jesus can handle both of those, he can handle both of those crisis situations. So after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate. That's uh, the name of a gate around the, uh, the wall of the city, the sheep gate. A pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, or we might call paraplegics or uh, uh, disabled in some way, uh, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And so what John is, is painting this picture is this pool of Bethesda. It's outside the sheep gate. And at this pool, just everybody flocks to. We're going to find out that there's this hope for healing at this pool. Uh, interesting little, all the history nerds in a second, if you put your nerd hat on, um, there was hundreds of years that people would read this story and say, this is a made up story in John. There is no pool of Bethesda. There's nothing outside the sheep gate. None of that is there. For hundreds of years, that was the official kind of uh, archaeological stances. We've looked, there's nothing there. Sorry, John made this one up. Uh, in the 1800s, in the 19th century, um, they did some excavations outside this sheep gate area and they found a church. They found a church that was built in, you know, the fourth or fifth century, something like that. And they're like, well, you know, there's a big church here, uh, so can't be the pool, whatever. And so uh, they found that in the 19th century, but because it was a church, the, the Catholic church says, hey, stop digging. <clears throat> this is ours. We, we want this land. You know, we're, we're not going to dig. In the uh, uh, 1960s, <clears throat> excuse me, into this century, they got permission to start digging under the church. And what they found was this church was actually built on top of a big basin with a wall between it, described exactly like it is in John, with five big pillars all the way around. And so what they were saying is there is no pool outside of Jerusalem with five porticos, five porches, five pillars. And until the 1960s, it was just pretty much assumed that John made this up and this might be a reason you can't trust the Bible. And then archaeology does what archaeology tends to do. It found that, oh, if you just dig a little deeper, the Bible was telling the truth, that this portico really is there. Here's what history says about that area. Uh, it was founded probably in the 8th century BC as like a baptism area for Jews uh, called a mitzvah. They would go for ritualistic bathing. It's real close to the temple. And so let's say, for instance, you accidentally got some Samaritan dirt on your feet as you're going to worship in the temple. You're like, ah, I got to get this off. You might stop at this pool, get it rinsed off, and then go. And then after some invasions and some things happen, it starts switching hands, this pool. Uh, but it has a natural spring water in its fed. It's warmer than all the water around. And so it became known as a place of healing. And so if you were Jewish, it was like a place of healing. If you were Gentile, pagan, they dedicated it to other gods along the way. It was just like, if you get, if you're sick, if you have a rash, if you, if you're, if you have arthritis in your knee, just go sit in this pool and it will, it will heal you. Um, and, and then it starts switching hands back and forth. Now the Jews are back in control, but the superstitions are still there. And the way that the superstition worked, <clears throat> excuse me, is 
is the, the waters would stay still, and then every now and then it would just start bubbling, like a random bubbling. And the superstition was either it was the god of whatever healing, I can't remember the names of the Greek gods, either that god is stirring the waters, or if you're Jewish, it was an angel of God invisibly, like, you know, flapping his wings over the water. Uh, or, you know, if you're just a superstitious person, when the waters move, get there as fast as possible, the first person there wins. You get healed, or whatever it is. And nobody, nobody can see like in scripture where like, you know, God said, yeah, this is a healing pool. But, but people kind of got into this space to where reason doesn't matter anymore. It's just the superstition. Do you, do you think, can you think of any moments where it's no longer really about what you believe? It's just, I'm so desperate. I hope that this is true. I, I hope, I, I believe in God and I believe that he's in control of everything, but I really hope that this other thing comes, comes true as well. And you kind of hold those side by side. There, there's a space that this guy's going to be in and all the other people that are here that they hold their religious views and they hold their beliefs, but they're kind of dabbling in, in hopes and wishes that have no real substance. This would be the same today as maybe like, um, I'm, th- I'm trying to think of like a, like a compulsive gambler, someone who they've lost a fortune already gambling and they're like, this is the one, this is the time I'm going to win. But all of your experience says that it's not. Yeah, but you never know. Like I have a little bit of hope. It, it may, I may get into this. I, I think of Christians who they, they hold a, like a strong faith and hey, I don't believe in hocus pocus, but you know, I read the horoscopes every now and then. I, I may, I may go to a fortune teller. Those, those people, they're, they're, they're dabbling in this stuff that they don't really believe in, in hopes that maybe it helps. You never know. It couldn't hurt, right? Um, when, uh, in the, in the, I guess I was in high school or, or just out of high school. Do you guys remember these power bracelet, power balance bracelets? There were these silicone bracelets with a hologram in it. You paid like $25 for the thing, and it, it boosted your health. It was amazing, right? Uh, the way it worked is that you, all of your aches go away if you put this bracelet on. Uh, you, you're, you're more flexible. And I thought, man, that's dumb. That is the dumbest thing I ever heard. And so this guy, he's trying to sell me on it. He wanted my $25, $30. And I'm like, no. Like, how can you prove to me that this thing's working? He says, put it on. Try it. And so I put it on. And he goes, now do this and turn as far as you can. So I twisted as far as I could one way. Um, and then and he's like, all right, take it off. And then I twisted. I couldn't go as far. He's like, put it back on there and go farther. It was this whole thing. And I'll be honest with you. I was like 18, 19 years old. I believe, like, I thought, uh, you know, it's probably not true, but it's only $30. And then I can like have superhero powers. I don't know. Uh, so I bought a power band bracelet. I wore it for, you know, six months. It was, it was, uh, you know, nothing, nothing super happened until they were sued. And then the power balance band people said, Hey, turns out, None of this is real. We made it all up. There's no science. And so I didn't get my money back. <laughs> I don't know what happened in that lawsuit. Uh, but it's this idea that people, including myself, just put hopes in places that there really is no hope. This pool represents that. People would go there. They'd bring their sick people. If they're sick, if they're injured, they would go there in hopes that maybe, just maybe, uh, the power of the pool, whether it's God or otherwise, would do something. And it says in verse 5, there was one man, out of all the people that were there, there was one man who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Jesus walks into this crowd. He, he shows up on this, this festival that he's at is on Sabbath. He goes there on Sabbath. He walks through this crowd. It'd be like a crowded room right here trying to get to the pool. And he goes to this one guy 
who's been there for 38 years in this condition. So he's at least 38 years old. Um, We're going to find out later that Jesus kind of connects his condition with maybe sin or a decision that he made. There's absolutely no evidence of what that is. I'm just kind of speculating here. Uh, I'm imagining maybe he was trying to steal someone's animal and then he fell and broke his spine, you know, something like that. Like in the middle of doing something wrong, uh, he's injured himself. And so here's a guy who's paying the consequences of something that he did younger in life. He might be 50, 55 years old. Anybody in here uh, have any regrets from their early 20s and teenagers? It's just like, yeah, I still kind of deal with that for a while. That's this guy, right? That's this guy who wishes, I just didn't do that thing. And for 38 years, Scripture says, he just hung out around that pool in hopes that one day the waters would stir in just a certain way and he might be healed. So in in our culture, that would be tragic, right? In his culture, it's that level of tragedy plus some extra because the assumption is is that if you're not whole, if you're not well, if you're not complete, um, you can't go to the temple to worship until you are. Um, you're completely dependent upon whomever is around you for support. Uh, this is happening on Sabbath. Jesus is showing up on Sabbath. And so this guy's experience of Sabbath is different than everybody else's. The way Sabbath would work, by the way, is um, Sabbath is on, on Saturday officially, but they, they start it on sundown Friday. And so the way it works is that uh, Friday is just a normal day of work, but when the sun goes down, it is party time. You put down all of your work, you go to some main town center, everybody gets there, and they, they just have a party. There's music, there's dancing, they're, they're drinking wine, they're just having a good time, celebrating all the rest that's about to happen. It's a festival of sorts. In fact, if you go to Jerusalem now, they still do this. They just go to the Western Wall, and there's like people with beatboxes, and they're breakdancing in front of the Western Wall. It sounds like a when we think of religious celebration, we think of like you know, oh, and like people have like smoke and like a whole thing. No, it's a, it's a real party with like food and celebration, and they're having just a great time. And so Jesus, when he walks into this area, this man would have heard this party happening outside, but he's not welcome to it. His his entire experience of what God's rest looks like is different than anybody else's. He hears the people talking about how nice it is to have a break from all of their suffering, all their toil, all of their labor. But this guy's been sitting at the pool the entire 38 years. Listen to me real quick, Christian. If you've been walking with the Lord for a minute and you've tasted his rest, and you've tasted some goodness, you've had some blessing in your life, you need to remind yourself that there are those who are outside of the Lord. Their experience of religious freedom, religious rest is different than yours. And we would be wise to just have eyes to see what the suffering is of some other people, some of their perspectives as they experience it. This guy has missed out on every Sabbath meal uh, up to this point. For 38 years, he's had this condition. The way Sabbath would end is that on Saturday, as the sun was beginning to set, all the families would get together and have a moment. They would read some scripture and they would, they would thank God for this, this moment of rest. They would, they would, they would talk about how good that rest was as a family. And then they begin their work, uh, the next day and looking forward to the next rest. And this guy most likely has not made it to one of those family meals this entire time. And here comes Jesus. Nobody asked Jesus to come. Um, Nobody said, hey, go talk to that guy. He's been there for 38 years. Jesus shows up and he sees this guy and he goes straight to him. And ESV scripture says, ask him, do you want to be healed? Um, In Greek, that that phrase literally is, is translated, do you desire to become whole? What a what an odd question that is. 
Because isn't it true that if someone is suffering, they obviously want to stop suffering, right? Isn't that how, how the world works? That's how I understand the world to work. Isn't it true that if, if someone's going through junk and you have the ability to help them, they want your help? They want you to step in and do a thing. Why would Jesus ask this question, do you want to be healed or do you desire to become whole? Uh, the reason, I think, is because, in fact, not everybody wants help. My experience has been that my assumption was wrong, that most people, many people, when they're in their suffering, they don't want help. As a social worker, I worked with a number of different families in a number of different situations, and there was this one biological dad. He named his daughter, poor, poor thing, after his favorite drug, and so that's on her birth certificate. But um, he was homeless. He lived in a tent by a river. He would tell me about alligators coming up, and it was like this thing. And in my mind, this is easy to fix. It's a homeless guy who's separated from his kid. I have the ability to help him get his act in order, help him get his goals met, help him, you know, overcome this. And I asked him, do you want my help? And he looked me in the eye as, as sober as possible. He's like, no, I love this. Are you kidding? No, I, I have all the freedom in the world. I can go anywhere I want. Nobody can tell me to do anything to do. And I can do any drugs I want without having the responsibility of my kids. He loved his situation. The suffering was enough for him to live with because he had built his identity so much in this that it was enough. Another, another family I worked with as a social worker was a single mom who uh, was beginning uh, an addiction that she's wanting to recover from. She had a teenage son, and she's like, I just want some help. I need to get out of this apartment complex. I need to get out of the situation. So I'm helping her, and what she asked me to help her do is to get off of welfare, because if she can get off of welfare, if she can get a job, she can go move to this other side of town. She feels like that would help her. I thought, okay, great. I'm a social worker. I should be able to help uh, a, a motivated person get out of this situation, and it turns out I couldn't. Because what would happen if she got a job is that she lost housing, she lost food stamps, she lost support for her kid. In fact, for her to get a job and make $25,000, $30,000 a year actually puts her in a deficit because of the situation she had found herself in was so dependent upon the help that she was getting. And the worst part of this is because she wasn't working and because of the idleness, it played into her depression, her anxiety, and her growing pill addiction that she was trying to break, but it was getting worse and worse. And I worked with her for 90 days and I couldn't get her out of it because her situation of suffering was where she had learned to live and it worked. So many uh, of our problems, problems in people that we see are points of suffering that if, if we had to be honest this, to this question, do you want to become whole? Many of them are like, uh, no, I kind of want to stay in this. This is what I've come to know. I've, I've come to understand my, my, uh, my eating disorder, my toxic relationships. So many, I'm thinking of all the mental illness, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, hoarding, the, these, these, these disorders. And you look at them as people on the outside and we think, that's suffering. Do you want to be whole? He's like, I just want the consequences of this to go away. But this is my life. I've come to accept this. This works for me. I, 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 there was a study that came out recently. The Surgeon General um, just announced a new uh, epidemic facing Americans uh, that is pretty, pretty tragic. It's like brand new, uh, right off, off, hot off the press this past week, brand new epidemic facing Americans. And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, I should probably know about that as someone who works with people, what the new epidemic facing Americans is. Is it, is it, you know, diabetes? Is it, is it, uh, drugs? Is it violence? Is it this? And it was, it was none of those things. The Surgeon General of the United States announced this week that, that one of the top five new epidemics facing Americans is loneliness. 
And then it starts talking about all of the health risks of that. And it starts talking about the, the way that it affects depression and, and how, how, how damaging it is to people. And then, and then, you know, what do you do about that? And so now the Surgeon General is trying to figure out how to overcome it. And I'm thinking to myself, in fact, I just recorded a video for our website that, that is going to put out that, you know, you know what can help with loneliness is a community of people, like maybe a church that can love you and protect you and, and do this thing. But, but do, do you want to be whole? Here, here's, here's a question that we need to ask ourselves. And, and maybe, maybe Paul is to ask people is, do you want the help? Jesus goes to this guy and he says, do you want to become whole? Do you want to be healed or are you okay with your current situation? Are you okay with the identity, the supports, the way people surround you? I think that this, this guy, I think Jesus asked this guy this question in this way because for 38 years, his entire identity has been, I'm broken, I'm hurt. All I have are these people next to me and I don't really like them. Um, they're not helping me. They are the problem. Everything about him is this pool. And I think Jesus being polite is like, if, if I do, if I do this healing thing, would you want that? Would you want to get out of this situation? So we ask him, he says, do you want to be healed? And I think we automatically think, well, yeah, of course he does. But, but this guy responds like so many people that we actually know in the real world. He says this. The sick man answered him, sir. Respectful tone. I'm always hit with every time someone calls to Jesus, sir. Uh, The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the water when the water is stirred up. Remember, that's when the healing is supposed to happen. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. He, he, Jesus asked him, do you want to be holy? He's like, I can't even get to the water, Jesus. Uh, this guy, his only understanding of what will make him whole is that moving water. And he's trying to tell Jesus for 38 years, he hasn't been able to make it into the water. Hasn't tripped into the water. Hasn't grabbed someone by the foot and like, nah, I'm going to beat you and like, you know, get past him. At no point in 38 years, hear how outlandish this is. In 38 years, you can't make it into the pool. Because in reality, I think his identity is so wrapped up in his suffering that he's better off standing on the banks complaining about the pool and the people around him. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another one steps down before me. It's all of them. It's the pool. It's the people. It's the that. It's the that. Um, psychologists uh, have this uh, phrase, uh, this, this idea that, that they work through. It's called a, a, a locus of control. And you have, you have one of two locus of control, loci of control. I don't know what the plural is. Uh, you, you either have an external locus of control or an internal locus of control. External is this. All of your problems are somebody else's fault. The reason why you're not happy is because that person isn't making you happy. The reason you're always angry is because that politician is always saying that thing. Everything about you and your internal world is everybody else's fault. That's an external locus of control. And psychologists would say it's a recipe for depression, anxiety. It's a recipe for all kind of problems in your life. But those who become really successful turn that and have an internal locus of control. You know what? The situation is what it is. The circumstances are what they are. But I'm going to do what I can to overcome. I'm going to seek a resource. I'm going to seek some help. And this guy just gave Jesus a list of all the external reasons why he can't be healed, not realizing that the man in front of him has the power to save him. Do you want to be healed? I can't. I can't get to the pool. People won't help me and they keep stepping on me. It's, I, I, I hate it. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. Jesus gives him three steps. Get up, 
take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. See, I I love that this guy hears what Jesus says, the three steps, and he obeys all three steps. He's healed and he takes up his bed and walks. A possible outcome of this is that Jesus heals him and this guy doesn't accept it right away. He's like, ah, my legs have never worked. I'm just going to sit here in this. I'm going I'm to stay right where I'm at and not take a step. I, I can imagine a scenario where Jesus is like, hey, I've already healed you. You could get up and walk. Like, ah, I can't. Jesus is like, all right, I'll see you later. And like a week later, the guy, just his legs start moving. He's like, I didn't know that could work. And he doesn't know what to connect it to. This guy, you know, good, good on him. He hears Jesus. He, he, he takes his bed and he gets up and he walks away. I would like to say that he skipped away, maybe did a little jig. I, I don't know. Does he walk away like a newborn giraffe at that point, just kind of like all like wobbly? Or does he strut like, like a stud walking out? Um, I wonder how long he's been at that pool. If, if he leaves and comes back every day, or is this his first time seeing the outside world for a minute? But remember, this is happening on Sabbath. And so, and so while everybody else is celebrating, this brother he has a new reason to celebrate. His source of suffering is gone. So he picks up his bed and he walks out. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to him, uh, uh, said to the man who had uh, been healed, hey man, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. I love how petty the legalistic people are getting at this moment. Yeah, sure, you've laid there for 38 years. Sure, your legs haven't worked for all that time, but you're breaking the law by grabbing your bed and walking out. Who who did that? Uh, and the man... Uh, uh, but, but he answered them, the man who healed me, uh, that man, uh, he said, take up your bed and, and walk. He's like, oh, uh, just some guy told me to do this. Why are you taking your bed? Some guy told me to take this bed. So they asked him, who was the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And the guy's like, I don't know. Now the man uh, who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. John, the author, he, he keeps telling us this idea about Jesus is that he's not really in it for the fame. He could have stood there and like taken the whole crowd of people and yay me. But uh, it says that he healed him. He's like, he just dips out. He just slides out. And so now this guy, hey, who healed you, man? I don't know. Just why are you carrying your bed? That guy told me to carry the bed. The guy who healed me. Well, who was it? I don't know. You didn't, didn't think to ask him his name? <laughs> like, hey, thanks for the legs. You know, nothing. Uh, Jesus, Jesus has no interest in, in flexing and becoming you know, famous at this moment. And that guy was so stuck in his situation. He doesn't stop to thank Jesus or even to, to catch his name. It says, um, verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And this is at the end of Sabbath. Temple is where you're going to go to kind of wrap up the rest day. And Jesus shows up as, as many other people would do. And in the crowd, Jesus sees this man who is making it to the temple for the first time in probably 38 years because he wouldn't have been allowed in the temple. And Jesus sees him and says, hey, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus celebrates when this guy takes a step of healing. Jesus celebrates when this guy moves into the temple to worship uh, because God has done a thing in his life. He didn't stay at the pool in his own suffering, in his own, in his own mess. He, God did a thing, and he put his feet under him, and he walked, and he began worshiping as we should when we are made whole. Jesus made him whole, and when he sees him at the temple, he says, look at you. Look at you. You're, you're better now. 
you're healed now. What would happen if, if Jesus were just kind of in this room, kind of mingling with you, and he kind of whispers in your ear, look at you. I'm so proud of where you've come from that moment where we first met. I'm so thankful you trusted me with that and you obeyed me in those steps. I'm so proud of you. You are doing good. You, you are healed. Look at you. You're good. You're healed. I see, I see so many people. They get so bound up in the things in their life that stink. Can I, can I just tell you something? There is no path from your birthday to your funeral that does not involve trauma. And it is a poison to take that trauma and make it you. Let it become you. Let it define you. You are not your trauma. And if we bring it to Jesus, it is fully possible that he heals you completely from it. We're going to find other stories where he doesn't heal the people from it, but he still gives them life. Jesus is still worth following. Remember last week, even if he doesn't answer the prayer the way that you say that he should, but he sees this guy and he says, look at you, you are, you are well. The man went away and told the Jews uh, that it was Jesus. He's like, I got his name. It was Jesus that healed me. Uh, and now we're going to, when we come back to this passage, we're going to see that this causes all kinds of problems for Jesus. They're ready to start killing him at this point because Jesus worked on the Sabbath. But did he though? Like, did Jesus even touch him? No, he's like, hey, pick up your mat and, and do your thing. Um, it says in verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, hey guys, my father is working until now, and I am working. He's like, you know what? My father sent me to do this. I'm doing what my father sent me. This guy, he had no business knowing who Jesus is. He didn't know who Jesus was. Even after Jesus had already done a thing in his life, didn't even know that it had happened. I think many of us could even look back in our own lives and see moments where Jesus did a thing before we knew who he was and before we were ready and willing to confess him as Lord. Um, and he heals and he restores and he brings us um, to a space where we're whole again. That word healing uh, could be translated whole. Do you, do you want... To be whole, I want to I want to ask um, three questions. Not in the sense that I need an answer right now, but maybe as we close out, like meditate on this this week. Meditate on this about others this week. And the first question is this: It sounds judgy, but it's not. No, what is your problem? <laughs> you know, when you look at someone, it's like, hey, what's your problem, buddy? Uh, but no, really, what what is your problem? Um, can you can you define it clearly? Um, that guy that we just met at the pool, he thought he could. My problem is I can't get to the water for the last 38 years, and my problem is these people. And Jesus is basically like, no, it's not, it's not your problem. What, what is your problem? What is your trauma? What is, what is it that is causing you all of that grief, all of that, of that pain? Can you name it? Can you identify it? Can you, can you articulate it? And are you right? Or is that just the narrative that we tell ourselves so that we have a chip on our shoulder and an ax to grind? It may be that Jesus isn't so much heal, willing to heal us of, of, of the thing that we think is the problem as much as he is willing to heal us of the chip that we carry around on us. Question one, what is your problem? Question two, after we've identified the problem, is do you want to become whole? The same question that he asked that man. Do you want to be healed from that? Are you ready to let it go? See, a lot of us, uh, we, carry, we carry that anger in us because that anger is the drive that really motivates us to do well at work and to have energy and passion. Like I, But that anger, it turns out, is going to rot us out. And it's going, it's going to bankrupt us. 
In fact, uh, just about every skill we learn in childhood to overcome our trauma, we use it as fuel, and then we find out it's not working anymore. And then Jesus tends to whisper in the ears of people who start to run up against that wall where the well is drying up again. Now I'm piecing together all kinds of messages that we've done recently. And the well starts drying up, and Jesus says, are you ready? Are you ready to be made whole? No, I want to go back to that well one more time. Okay, well, I'll be here when you're, when you're ready to come back. When you're ready to be whole, I will make you whole. But I'm not going, Jesus, I think, would say, I'm not going to participate in that dysfunction. So you go ahead, and when you're ready, come, come back to me. Do you want to become whole? And then the third question to meditate on this week, and this may be the hardest of all, is that if Jesus actually offered to make you whole, would you trust him with it? And would you obey him? Would you accept it? Would you do it his way? A lot of us, we want to be whole. Jesus says, okay, here's the steps. And we hear the steps like, ah, oh, that's not going to work. I'm not going to obey. I'm not, I'm not going to do this. That guy was told to pick up his mat and walk. Go on, get your bed and get out of here. He hasn't taken a step in 38 years. I think I would have trouble believing I can put my feet under me at this moment. But Jesus whispered in his head and says, I've given you the power to take the step, but I'm, in, I'm, I'm ordering you to take that step. I think I would have taken a week before I even tried it out. I don't know that I would have tried it right away because I'm, I'm stubborn in that way. This guy, he obeys. If Jesus offers to make you whole, really whole, really heal you, not just in the way that we hope he would answer our prayers, are you willing and courageous enough to accept him on his terms and to obey what he says? This is a great story about Jesus showing up in someone's life um, when they had no business knowing who Jesus is, because that's how Jesus uh, operates. At this pool, not only was this man, but were any number of other people, but Jesus just healed the one. And so we, we now at this space, we're like, Jesus answers prayers his way. He's a real and alive God. And so, and so he's, he's the source of life and power. We come to him not just for the blessing, not even primarily for the blessing. We come to him because he's the source of life, whether he heals this man this time or he just gives him life. I, I would encourage you to take this Jesus seriously and to meditate on, do you want that healing? Does, does your family, does your friend who breaks your heart, do they really want that healing? Maybe the prayer for, for, for them that you should be praying isn't that they no longer have suffering, but that Jesus shows up in their life. Maybe their suffering is there for the one purpose of driving them to the cross. Maybe the suffering that is in your life is there to drive you to the cross and to create in you a desperation, a dependency on this Lord Jesus so that when you taste his life, when you, when you drink that water and it, it sustains you for the long haul, it is sweet and it's good. And then you join with the angels and sing, he is holy. He is set apart. He is beautiful. He is beyond comparison for anything else. And it was your suffering that taught you that. Um, random quote just popped in my head. I'm going to say it was Oswald Chambers. I don't know if it was. I'll close with this. It was, he says, till my sin be bitter, my Christ be not sweet. Somebody Google that and tell me who said that. Till my sin be bitter, my Christ be not sweet. Until we taste the consequences of our own suffering, what, why would we celebrate Jesus? He is so different than our problems. Let me pray. Uh, then we'll watch the cue together. Father, Father, we come to you um, as people uh, that, that may be around this, this pool, uh, metaphorically, of, of suffering. We come to you as people that we've made the mistake of adopting our traumas and our sufferings as our identity. And we know so many people that we love and we care about that have done the same. Father, help us 
to be these vehicles that drive uh, them towards the cross or ourselves towards the cross. Give us the courage to be obedient to what you call us to. Give us the courage to ask and answer some hard questions. Do we really want to be whole? I pray, Father, for, for those of us in this room that we would be whole, that we would taste and see that you are good. I pray for those of us in this room that we would be mediators and messengers of you making others whole, that we would bring broken people to the cross. May we be a group that doesn't neglect and ignore the brokenness of others. We don't judge the brokenness of others. We don't push them away. Um, we just bring them to you, and we trust you to do um your work uh, to bring life. Uh, We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.